The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Hello and welcome to the second part of BBC History Magazine's February 2009 podcast. I'm Sue Wingrove and I'm the acting editor of the magazine. And I'm Rob Attar, section editor of the magazine. Now, this February is the 200th anniversary of the birth of Charles Darwin, the British scientist who laid the foundations of the theory of evolution and transformed the way we think about the natural world. This is a special Darwin podcast to tie in with the BBC's Darwin series 2009. Coming up in this podcast... He had insights to a degree that's almost supernatural. That was Sir David Attenborough discussing the great naturalist. We got to understand that his whole background was anti-slavery. And that was Adrian Desmond on one of the driving forces behind Darwin's work. Yes, we'll hear more on those in a moment. You're listening to the podcast which accompanies BBC History magazine. If you're not familiar with the magazine, it is produced by BBC magazines in the UK. It comes out monthly and you can get it delivered to you anywhere in the world. We'll give details of how to subscribe later on in the podcast. First up, our TV editor Jonathan Wright interviews to David Attenborough about his new programme on Charles Darwin and evolution. Here's what he had to say. Perhaps if you could begin by just telling me a bit about how your programme approaches Darwin and his work. And um, your well, take it on doesn't it. approach him particularly biographically. Uh, it's not a story about it doesn't start with his youth and the end with his death. Uh, it is the notion that as to what evolution actually means, and there are two sections to what it means. The first is, did it take place? And the second is, how did it take place? And by and large, I'm concerned with, did it take place? And the evidence that is now sort of overwhelming, so it isn't any question as to whether it's theoretical or something. I mean, it is as a historical fact, which is inalienable. It is as firm as the fact that William the Conqueror landed in 1066. And firmer, really, because the evidence for it comes from such a huge variety of different kinds of disciplines and sources. I mean, it comes from genetics, it comes from geology, it comes from botany, it comes from embryology. So in Darwin's time, a number of objections were raised. First of all, where, where are the links, if, if everything related? Why are there not links between them all? They were thought to be missing. Secondly, oh, how old is the Earth? The Earth couldn't be old enough for. Uh, thirdly, uh, how are these characteristics passed on? Because they didn't know anything about genetics. And so well, I deal with these objections one at a time and show that science in the 150 years since the publication of The, of the Origin has dealt with every one of these. Right. The interesting thing is that actually how recently it has dealt with them. Because one of the problems, for example is if you say that frogs arose from animals that came from the sea, amphibians, how is it, that, uh, on, in, which presumably happened just somewhere on a continent, 
how is it that there are frogs in Africa and South America and, and Australia when we know that frogs have got permeable skins and would die at sea? So how could they have got there? Mm. Well, Darwin's opponents said that God created them separately and said, thou shalt have frogs to the Australians. Thou shalt have frogs to And, of course, what we know now is that the continents formed one supercontinent, frogs arose there, and then when spread all over the supercontinent, when the bits uh, fragmented and moved away, there they were, that's that's how it happened. But that knowledge, that certainty as a fact, is amazingly recent. I mean, when I was an undergraduate, that was heresy, believe it or not. Well, that's the the theory that the continents... Yeah, 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 the continental continental drift. drift. And as I say in the programme, I relate. I went to the professor and said, I represent the students, the geology students. We demand that you teach us continental drift because in the 20s it was suggested by a German. And my professor said, my dear Edinburgh, when you can demonstrate to me a power that can shift a continent by a millimetre, I'll consider thinking it. But until then, it's moonshine, Right. That's in, when I was an undergraduate, you know. And now every kid and everybody, every thinking adult knows perfectly well that the world, you know, the continents have shifted. And, I mean, the climax, I suppose, of the fulfilment of Darwin's theory was this final thing of genetics and DNA. Mm. I mean, the, the discovery of DNA put the lid on the whole thing and it, it allowed it to explode, really. I mean, that gave the underlying mechanisms for all that Darwin had been talking about in a a remarkable and thrilling way. I mean, it is very exciting. So much of that has happened in my time. I mean, genetic DNA, discovery of DNA, wasn't until the 50s. Mm. I'd left university by 20 years. I suppose, yes, it was in the 50s, wasn't it? It's incredible. In in that context, then, how much of a leap was Darwin's thinking and and how much of it was a development? Well, it wasn't as big a leap as all that. I mean, the the notion was in the air, the zeitgeist and all that jargon. Everybody had been thinking about this. And every naturalist since Aristotle had recognised that frogs must surely be related to one another in some kind of way. And therefore used the word... Actually, I mean, Linnaeus used the word. They're families. Now, if you call them families, that implies that they're related. But the huge thing that Darwin did was, first of all, to accumulate enormous quantities of evidence over across a vast number of disciplines, but also to suggest the mechanism, you see. It was natural selection that made them take the history of evolution seriously. Now, I don't... De- I mean, of course, I mentioned natural selection, and it's actually very simple, as we all know. I mean, a child can understand natural selection. But I don't go into it. What I go into is dealing with all the objections which people in Darwin's time, and still in America particularly today, say, no, it didn't happen. The links are missing. Well, the links aren't missing. I mean, we've now discovered links between every great major group. Or there wasn't enough time because uh, the Earth is only 4,000 years old. That's the creationist. (laughs) Creationist time. And we now know because of radioactivity that we can actually date it. And I go through all these various objections and show that they've all been solved. Hmm. Was there a certain need to get across this because of creationism and the the rise of that in the USA at the moment? Yes, absolutely. It's only a fringe in this country compared with America. But nonetheless, it's a dangerous fringe. And, I mean, it's like saying, well, we're not going to say in mathematics that uh, two and two are four, because there is a, a view somewhere in the arts people somewhere that it's actually 3.7. Right. So we're going to teach both, you know, uh, because we are open-minded. I mean, you see, that's 
rubbish. It's cowardly. It's it's terrible. And it's the thin end of a wedge as well, isn't it? Absolutely. And and it's doing down our children, really. What do you make of Darwin, looking back at him as a man? He comes through history as quite an admirable person, actually. Very rigorous and very humane. Only admirable. Yeah. Very modest. And, I mean, arrogance is not a word that you could mention in his presence. I mean, you know, he is a modest, generous, honourable. He was racked with illness, which a lot of people forget. One of the reasons, at any rate, why he didn't make the announcement himself was that his, well, partly his, his uh, young child had died three days before. And so perhaps nobody could be expected to do that. But, but also he seldom went up and, and read the papers at scientific meetings because he was illness. But he had insights to a degree that's almost supernatural. He is absolutely meticulous about, when he's making statements, to show the chapter and verse of all the facts that we would do. And then when there aren't enough, he will say, but maybe... You know, it could be this. Now, almost every one of those speculations over the past 150 years has been proved to be true. Mm. His insight and his, or as I say, almost supernatural ability to see clearly, even if he can't prove it, to see what it really is going on, is breathtaking. And of course, the other thing about him is that he was only less than five years on the Beagle. All the rest of his time, he was in Down House in Kent. And that's where it was all done, you see. He did it by looking at blue tits and earthworms, not by all the exciting stuff, hummingbirds and uh, iguanas and giant tortoises and so on. He knew about this, but but the solid stuff is what he did and saw in his garden and what he communicated with other scientists and naturalists throughout Europe and indeed America. There were five post deliveries in his house per day. Just for his... For down. <laughs> well, I don't, I, I don't know enough, but as I understand it, I mean, it's not just one post that might come either late in the morning or in the early in the afternoon, according to how the postman feels about it, as it is now. They were there all the time, and he wrote a dozen letters a day. And not, thank you very much, yours sincerely, as a science photograph. He wrote serious letters, up to a dozen a day. Do we sometimes miss that rigour in concentrating on the voyages? We miss the scientists, in a sense, sometimes, don't we? I think we do, yes. Mind you, he's... <laughs> It's a charming... I, I had the privilege of sitting in... We filmed a lot in Down, looking at his journal from the vehicle. And he says, um, this is an extraordinary place, these volcanic islands. Just an amazing landscape. Reminds me of Wolverhampton. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yes! <laughs> what was his logic, do you know? Well, of course, 1830... It's the height of the Industrial Revolution, you see. So they had uh, iron smelting uh, furnaces and so on. So you compared it with the lava. So, but I mean, it's nice to see the word in the journal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How much is he a, a 19th century man and how much is he a modern man? He seems to straddle our two eras a bit. He certainly he? does. He's a 19th century man in that the pace of his life had this stately quality to it that he progressed solidly, but in millimetre by millimetre towards its conclusion. But he is a 20th century man in his insights, into seeing the consequences of what his thoughts were. He is a 20th century man. He was one of the first, if not the first, I don't know what the answer, but whether he was the first. But I think he was, he was the first to use photography to illustrate his books. I didn't know that. The, uh, I mean, The Expressions of the Emotions, which is one of his last books, it's a riveting book, actually, and it's got these fantastic photographs, real photographs, I think they're called holotypes or holotypes, or 
but, but of human faces, some of them in mental institutions, and some of them where the physician had passed electric currents through them. But, but it's a riveting book, so that he was way ahead there. The extraordinary disjunction between world thought, as it were, is that is at the very time that he is writing Origins of Species in town, there's this chap in Czechoslovakia, you know, in his garden experimenting with peas, and that the two never communicated with one another. They didn't know one another. And Dharma's racking his mind to try and work out what the mechanism of, of inheritance was. And Mendel, sitting there in Bruno, had the answer. And it's one of the very few things that, in reading Darwin's books, you, you know is wrong, which is he was desperately trying to work out how on earth it was that a baby elephant looked like an adult elephant. And he had a theory about what he called gemules. He thought that there were things in the blood which carried the instructions. Well, actually, it's not bad. It's not and horrible, particularly now, I mean, there are things, well, the cutting edge of genetics involves things called Hox genes, which, well, perhaps you know what Hox genes are. They are bundles of genetic material which have the complete instructions to build an arm, for example. And that's what... Darwin was after. and I mean, he knew that salamanders, for example, if you cut off the, a leg, they actually have the ability to rebuild that leg, complete with toes and the whole thing. So how? And his notion was gemules. But then, if they salamander have gemules, why don't we have gemules? We have not. So on. I mean, that is the one place where you can see him hammering right at the end of his life and sort of trying to deal with this problem. If there's sort of one message that Darwin's work gives us that's today at a time of kind of very great stress on oh, yeah. environment and so oh, on, yeah. what is I mean, it? The, 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 and that's one of the things that the programme deals with, really, is that in Darwin's time, the Bible was, was regarded by significant proportions of Western Europe as not just true in, in a basic sense, but in a literal sense. And Genesis says, you know, God created that and said... To Adam and Eve, go forth and multiply, and the natural world is theirs for you to have dominance over all these natural creatures. They are there for you to exploit as you wish, in effect. And that notion still is very difficult to... Uh, it's still not dead. And one of the commonest expressions of it, which is perhaps indirect, but nonetheless one of the commonest expressions, is very bright people, you know, not stupid people. People say... I don't really understand um, what mosquitoes are for. And you say, what do you mean for? They say, well, they don't do any good, you know. I mean, they don't do any good. So why do you suppose that mosquitoes are for you, or should be for you? Mosquitoes are mosquitoes. That's what mosquitoes are for, in order to produce more mosquitoes. That's what evolution is about. And that notion that somehow the world is there for us to exploit, which is certainly the case in Darwin's time, is still very, very strong in the Western imagination. And disastrously so. You can see what's the result of it. That we think, oh yes, if there's a woodland there, we'll knock that down because I think I'd like to build a swimming pool or a motorway or whatever. And, and we actually assume the planet is for us. And, of course, what Darwin showed was that we are pretty well the last arrivals on the planet. The Earth was doing fine before us. Well, it wasn't doing fine. We had to get asked the dinosaurs. But the world was there before we were. And we do not have dominance over the natural world. We have a responsibility towards it because we're the most powerful organism yet uh, evolved. But it's not there for us simply to exploit
Which perhaps suggests that we haven't taken on his work emotionally because it... Oh, we haven't. Oh, no, we haven't. I end the programme by saying, it's quite interesting, you know, Darwin's great opponent was Richard Owen, who built the National History Museum. And it's amazing to me, for you're from History Magazine, so you'll be aware of it, but it's amazing to me that the press and everybody else has not made any, any notice of the fact that until a month ago, if you walked into the Natural History Museum, the statue on the stairs that faces you, was Richard Owen. Right. The man who believed in creationism, really. But he isn't there now. Darwin's there now. And the, the museum has actually, within the last few weeks, spent a hell of a lot of money, thousands of pounds, because you don't move ten-pound statues easily now. I put Owen to one side and put Darwin in his place. And, um, and so the, the film actually ends with that. And I'm, I stand by the new position of Darwin saying, and, and saying, so what difference does it make? Why is he what the most seminal thinker of the world today? And the answer is because it has affected every aspect of our thinking about the natural world. The fact that we understand that bacteria evolve means we can do something about devising ways of dealing with the diseases they do. The fact that we understand now that animals and plants in societies have evolved and enmeshed and connect with one another in the way that Darwin disentangled means that if we start interfering with those communities, we can begin to understand or to predict some of the consequences of our doing so. But above all, the, the effect of Darwin's thought is that we should now realise that, that we are all life is related and that we are not that special. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter, because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. And that was Sir David Attenborough, whose Charles Darwin and the Tree of Life aired recently. The first part of the BBC's Darwin series, 2009, continues into April. The series will then return later in the year, as the 24th of November is the 150th anniversary of the publication of On the Origin of Species. Now, here's a quick reminder of how you can subscribe to BBC History magazine. Yes, Sue. UK listeners who subscribe to BBC History magazine before the 24th of February this year will receive 12 issues for the price of nine, and that works out at just £2.70 an issue. For more details, go to www.subscribeonline.co.uk forward slash history magazine, or you can call us on 0844 844 0250, quoting the code POD 0209. 
And if you're listening to this podcast outside of the UK, you'll be delighted to learn that you can get the magazine sent to you anywhere in the world. Just call us on plus four four one seven nine five four four seven two eight for details. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke to Adrian Desmond, whose new book, co-authored with James Moore, argues that Darwin's passionate hatred of slavery was one of the driving forces behind his scientific work. And now let's have a listen to what he had to say. In your new book, Darwin's Sacred Cause, you and co-author James Moore contend that Darwin's work was strongly inspired by his anti-slavery views. Could you please expand on that a little? Yes, well, we've always had a problem with Darwin. People tend to assume he was a, a lone genius, picking gems of truth out of the air, heroically striding forward. Now, historians tend to work quite differently. We tend to look at the context. We want to know why people say what they say. And in our last book, or many, many years ago, we showed how Darwin sat on his theories for 20 years. So inflammatory were they, so worried was he about their content and how they'd be received. But that raised an even bigger question. Well, why did he devise his theory in the first place? So we came back together to um, look at the causes of basically the inflammatory content. Why did Darwin assume that humans came from monkeys? Now, we came from two sides and produced quite a novel thesis. Firstly, we got to understand that his whole background was anti-slavery. His grandfather was an anti-slaver on both sides. His maternal grandfather was the potter, Josiah Wedgwood, who produced the famous cameo, Am I Not a Man and a Brother, showing a kneeling slave pleading to be let free. Josiah Wedgwood, he bankrolled the whole anti-slavery movement. He bankrolled Thomas Clarkson, who was the founder of the anti-slavery movement. Darwin's other grandfather was Erasmus. He, too, was an anti-slaver. He was the one who suggested that they actually take some of the instruments of torture that were devised in the industrial Midlands to the House of Commons to show them just what was happening. Masks for slaves, chains, things like this. Darwin's sisters, Darwin's father, Darwin's cousins, they were all anti-slavers. They put thousands of today's money into the anti-slavery movement. He was actually born and bred inside this movement. Now, the movement was based on certain assumptions. One was, am I not a man and a brother? The races are brothers, which is a very interesting concept. Racial brotherhood. It took the biblical universal father, which is made of one blood, all the nations of men, literally. And Darwin took it literally. So we had the context to understand why he would view all races as brothers. And we looked at his evolution, which, of course, is based on common descent. All races go back to a father, a founding father. All animals go back to a founding mammal, bird, reptile, whatever. A trillion common descents take all life back to a common ancestor. And that was a very interesting tie-up. So we looked at his evolution notebooks, those famous notebooks he wrote just after he came back from the Beagle. And we found that, yes, sure enough, human genealogy was the way he looked at the evolution of life, a sort of pedigree that the races were tied together, all life was tied together, all suffering creation was tied in and went back to a common ancestor. So Jim and I came together and... Um, plotted out the new book, and produced an essentially new image of why Darwin would have approached life in this peculiar and quite unique way. So do you think that anti-slavery, was that even the prime motivation behind his work? I think it was 
one of the main motivations. It was reinforced on the Beagle Voyage. Everybody knows the Beagle Voyage, of course, and most people concentrate on the Galapagos. But actually, the Beagle spent most of its time going up and down the Brazilian coast. Now, the Brazilian coast was a coast full of slavery and slave smuggling. It was a porous coast, and the Navy's mission, one of its missions, apart from surveying, was to stop the slave trade. So, of course, they were on the lookout for slavers. They saw the slave ships continually going up and down the coast. They saw slave ships that had dumped their slaves on the coast. Darwin saw slaves. He saw the whips. He saw the thumb screws. He saw the torture, and he was a very sensitive chap. He really hated cruelty. So, of course, he was sensitized by the whole Eagle voyage. And we found some really very interesting things about the Beagle that people didn't know. For example, there's a tender that attends the Beagle. The Beagle was a big ship, by comparison, and there was a small tender that went in and out of the shore to bring supplies out to the ship and take the sailors in. Now, the previous trip the Beagle had made to South America, it had a tender called the Adelaide, which had actually been a slaving ship. And the irony was that the Navy captured it, turned it to a, become a tender for the Beagle. When the Beagle returned with Darwin on it, the Adelaide reappeared, having just dumped 200 slaves up the coast. It had returned for slaving. So there's absolutely no contest about what it was. The context of Darwin's work was always cruelty, anti-slavery, how to get the races united. Why would he want the races united? because the slave owners, the plantation owners, uniformly insisted that the races were different species and totally unrelated. So Darwin's activism was not so much putting money into the anti-slavery cause. It was a far more subtle scientific approach. Recast your science so that it destroys the basis of the whole slavery movement. Can you see his anti-slavery views through reading his books? It shows... Periodically, and I'll give you one example that nobody really is concentrated on, but is quite uh, indicative. The Descent of Man was the book he published in 1871, and finally his admission that he believed in human evolution. Surprisingly, he hadn't mentioned it until that point. It was a book that he was pretty much forced to write because it, it was anathema to society at large. He worried about the response he'd get. But when you read the book, you find he pays a lot of debt. And at the end, he talks about the sort of people who sit at the moral apex of human society. And he picks out Thomas Clarkson. And there again is the man whom the Wedgwoods finance, whom, whose Darwin's relatives knew quite well. So he's always paying debt. And even in um, his earlier book, he'd hit very hard the people who were soft on slavery. So, for example, his geological mentor, Charles Lyell, went to America, 1841. But he came back and was complaining that the whites were having a hard time, that is, the slave owners. The slaves seemed comparatively content. Now, Darwin was a very mild man. He wasn't given to outbursts. But at this, he went absolutely ballistic. How can you say such a thing? He said, this is an odious, deadly subject. He was ticking Lyle off for being soft on slavery. But Darwin's own anti-slavery views were very subtle and came out in very subtle ways through his evolution notebooks and through his journal where he hit Lyle very hard and in the explanations he gave for tying up the races by means of evolution. Was Darwin active at all in abolitionist circles? 
No, not at all. All of his relatives were. His sisters particularly were strong. His Wedgwood cousins were all very strong. They founded abolitionist societies. They put money into the abolitionist movement. They bankrolled people like Clarkson. Um, but Darwin didn't. He was never an activist. He was always a recluse. He was a very retiring, shy sort of man. He never went out much. Later in life, he practically shut himself away. But he achieved far more than they did at the end of the day through uniting the races and showing that the racists were wrong by saying that the blacks and whites were separate species, which is the prime driving force, I think, behind much of his work on human evolution. And do you think in the end his work did contribute to much greater racial harmony? I don't know that you can say that. I suppose it must have done in the larger view at the end of the day. But certainly he was in favour of racial harmony. He's quite an extraordinary character. He, um, he was actually taught by a black ex-slave, a Guyanese ex-slave. And he was taught when he was only 16 years old. He was a 16-year-old student at Edinburgh University. Very impressionable, very young. He hated medicine, but he did love the lessons he had. And he think we had about 40 of them in 1826, when he first went to Edinburgh, from a Guyanese ex-slave in how to stuff animals and birds. Now, many people were racist at the time, but he said that, well, first of all, he wouldn't have given money to a, what he called a, a Negro, a, um, a black person, and, and find him an intimate friend, intelligent, all the things he said about him. If he was racist, he wasn't. He was quite sympathetic to black people, very sympathetic to black people. And this tends to show throughout his work, whenever blacks are oppressed, he tends to come out on their side. And that, again, was an upshot of his upbringing in a completely anti-slavery context. So, 200 years after Darwin's birth, do you think we should now be celebrating him as a great campaigner against racism and slavery? Well, I think we should. It's certainly a novel angle. Nobody's looked at him from this perspective before. It shows him in a new light. It shows him in a humanitarian light. It shows the moral basis of the science that he developed. Generally, his science is looked at as supporting atheism or anti-religion. But in fact, there was a strong humanitarian basis to his science. This was the Darwin who, as a student, would groan about anti-slavery. And in fact, one of his friends at Cambridge, he went to Cambridge after he was at Edinburgh University, said it stirred one's innermost depths to hear him groan over the horrors of the slave trade. Well, I think that that's beginning to uh, show through in his science. Strange place for it to show through. But I think we're beginning to see his science in a whole new light. And we should celebrate him as a sort of silent activist on behalf of the slaves. And that was Dr Adrian Desmond, who is an honorary research fellow at University College London. His book, co-authored with James Moore, is called Darwin's Sacred Cause and is published by Penguin. It's out now. And that brings us to the end of this podcast from BBC History magazine. Do look out for the February issue, which includes a feature on Charles Darwin's grandfather Erasmus, who had some rather revolutionary ideas himself. And don't forget, to subscribe or for downloads of previous podcasts, just go to our website at www.bbchistorymagazine.com.